going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. I'm at a bit of a loss here because I feel like part of me feels like anyways that Brenda buried the lead in that newscast. I thought for sure the lead is, hey, the ban on booze in provincial parks. Like there's your lead. But at the same time, I mean, there's some pretty big news, obviously, out of Ottawa with the Senate and what they're deciding on when it comes to those two very contentious bills uh, in front of them. Federal bills that have been we've really been uh, going to town on over the last little while here in Alberta and across the energy industry. So really fascinating stuff on both fronts. I'm looking forward to revisiting some of that tape from Premier Jason Kenney a little later on in the show and some of the things that he was saying uh, want to bring in full context for you as well, both on the uh, oil pipeline front, but also in the booze front as well, because I think uh, both stories, I kind of almost feel like he's got that buck of beer story for himself there all of a sudden. It's very much the same as the Ontario story. Uh, All right. Welcome, greetings, salutations. Hope all is well with you and yours on this Thursday. Looks a little gloomy out there. How can you tell the May long weekend is upon us? Uh, yeah, uh, don't be surprised if you wake up with snow on the ground at some point uh, if you're going to the hills a little bit later on. Just saying. Uh, today's show, all-encompassing. A little, uh, we go a little bit more in-depth on a couple of different topics today. Really looking forward to it. We're going to start things off talking uh, about the cost of living in this city and a living wage. Vibrant Communities Calgary, Franco Savoy is going to join us in just a few minutes to go over what that living wage looks like nowadays. And I know a lot of people think, oh, it's gone up again because we're asking for more and this, that, the other thing. Believe it or not, it's actually dropped by... 75 cents. So we'll get the latest from Franco and give you a little bit of context because I, I get that question all the time. I don't understand the difference between a living wage and a minimum wage. We're going to get to the very bottom of it and get a little bit more in terms of what's happening here in Calgary. So we'll talk that. Also, TV versus real life when it comes to forensic investigations. Scott Marks, an instructor over at Bow Valley College and former uh, forensic specialist with Calgary Police as well. He's going to join us after four o'clock as we go through. It is police week. And I thought it'd be kind of cool to to have a little bit of a discussion about uh, the intricacies surrounding the crime scene investigations. That's CSI. I'm going to have to go get that uh, audio clip from um, what's his name now? David Caruso. That's the one. Played that tape over and over and over again. Little who never got, uh, never did you any wrong. So we'll have a great in-depth conversation with uh, Scott Mark uh, after four o'clock. Like I said, we'll also revisit the Jason Kenny audio. He's speaking with reporters, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes ago. So we're just getting and sifting through all of that. We'll get to that. Also, a story that has been percolating in BC has surrounded money laundering. And I asked the question yesterday, hey, there's got to be some sort of affect here in Alberta. And as it turns out, Alberta might be a bit of a hotbed for money laundering. The author behind one of these reports, Dr. Brigitte Unger, will join us after five o'clock to talk more about what she saw, she was going through the BC stuff, and believe it or not, Alberta might actually be leading the charge across the country on that front. So we'll uh, go a little more in depth on that story. And I wanted to end the show. I mean, we're heading into the long weekend, so why not have a little bit of fun near the end? And I don't know if you can find a better combination than puppies and donuts. 
But the Calgary Police Foundation and the Pacific Assistance Dogs Society have found that perfect combination. They are selling donuts in an effort to raise money for justice facility dogs, a.k.a. those courtroom puppies that you've seen a few stories about, heard about, um, those dogs that help the the witnesses and the victims uh, open up, that kind of thing. Great feel-good story. Tara Doherty over at uh, PADS, the Pacific Assistance Dog Society, will join us after 5.30 to talk more about their efforts and what today's announcement means. And then it is... National Caesar Day, invented right here in Calgary. And I thought we'd bring in somebody that could tell us, give us a few tips, especially going into long weekend. If you can get a Caesar during the long weekend, hey, why not? Kenton Rinnick over at Home and Away is going to join us to give us a few tips on how to make the perfect Caesar. We're going to talk living wages next here on Calgary Today. A new report coming out from Vibrant Communities Calgary surrounding living wage. Joining us now from Vibrant Communities Calgary is Executive Director Franco Savoya. Franco, thanks so much for the time as always. Oh, you're most welcome. Glad to be here. It's a little bit of a different story, different twist on it this Uh year because actually the cost of living has dropped. Therefore, the living wage has also dropped. What have you guys found? Well, it's really interesting. I think the what we did... We we did, we did the calculation, in fact, and we we changed it a bit from the because uh, it it actually was higher, and then we redid it for 2017. And what we discovered uh, the reduction, by the way, when you look at the detail, what it is is that the new policies in government, uh, these non-refundable tax credits, like as long as you file your taxes, it translates into fourteen hundred dollars more income for you but you have to file your taxes and that's what causes the reduction it was 1720 it's now 1645 but it really is that like things like the carbon tax uh, rebate and uh, and a bunch of other things like that but it translates into fourteen hundred dollars more give us a little bit of an idea as to what the average person is when you're trying to determine a living wage because i know that is kind of a i'll call it a point of contention for a lot of people Sure. I think what we do, by the way, we use this calculator that was developed by the Center for Policy Alternatives nationally. And those of us that are involved in this work that are doing it in Edmonton, here, Canmore, we use uh, we use exactly the same calculator. Now, you have to then, you, for example, for housing, we go to central mortgage and housing. And we and say if you have a family of four, because you use a family of four, which is not, you got to use some standards. Uh, but that's how we do the calculation, and we know that it's a three-bedroom apartment. It's worth this in Calgary on average. Mm-hmm. So you put all these in for food. It's it's nine hundred dollars a year. Like you know, but you just go down or a month, I should say. So you put all those things together, and you develop what you're going to need to meet your basic needs: food, transportation, telephone, utilities. In in that all adds up. Uh, in there, there's child care, you know, because you, you have children. And there's assumption that one of your children is going to eat child care. So you make all these assumptions, and this gives you a proxy around what you're going to need. And the family of four in Calgary, our reality is, is that if you're making less than $66,000 a year before taxes, you're likely, and depending, you'll go to family or or some social service like the food bank to meet some of your needs because you just won't be able to meet them. 
It gives a, a lot. I remember a, a guest on Danielle's show a while yeah. back where they said, you know, $70,000 as your wage in the city doesn't get you a whole lot. And that really puts it into perspective when you're saying 66000 you're you're on the bubble there. You are, absolutely. I think the reality on this one here, and for all of us Calgarians, I think we just have to be just be more sensitive to this because you think all this money, it is not when you have, you have these are all fixed costs that you have and uh it it really just it does uh it really affects it now and that we're dealing with a family of four here if in fact you were a, a single mom with two children for example the, the, it's not 1645 anymore we haven't done the calculation totally but it'll be higher because some of those other costs don't change but you don't have two incomes coming in because the mm-hmm. assumption is with four, both of you are working at sixteen forty-five an hour, and and that's that's the dollar figure that we were alluding to earlier is a exactly. living wage of sixteen forty-five, exactly. which you know we talk about the the minimum wage of fifteen dollars, yeah. and everybody, oh, you can live off of that. Well, apparently it's it's a little tougher than maybe we give it credit for. It absolutely is. I think what we're encouraging, in fact, I mean, and I know for employers. I know that people can say, well, you know, that's all we can afford to pay. But as I've often talked to some folks, I'm saying, if in fact, you know, you're paying $15 an hour, you're basically saying you're asking your employees to subsidize your business. I mean, that's the honest to God truth because they, they will have to go somewhere else, either get a second job or third job to, uh, to make ends meet. So, and I know how challenging what I'm saying is, but, I think there are businesses here in our city, even in the service industries, who have decided we're going to do things differently. And they are working, and we're, we're working towards a living wage employer program to recognize those individuals well, and organizations. Yeah, and I, and I know a lot of businesses are actually going above and beyond now and saying, you know what, 15 isn't enough. We understand the pressures. Right. And, and part of it is is because they realize that their employees are having to get that second and third job, and it's taking away from their productivity on their, their main job or what they think is their main job. Well, not only that, but it, we, there are some studies that didn't even show that, it, that if, in fact, your turnover reduces. Uh, I mean, there's some stuff that was done, some studies out of Harvard that basically indicates if you pay people, you know, a living wage, you will reduce your turnover and therefore your training and all this other thing. But you've got to be in it for a while. Like, in other words, you can't just do this overnight is my point. Take, you can make, look at your business model, review it over a period of time and say, I'm going to get to this point because some businesses have done that. And we're talking about restaurants. We're talking about it, this is, doesn't have to be just, uh, you know, courts of the oil industry. Mm-hmm. And even beyond that, I think what a lot of businesses are doing are they're, they're finding alternative ways of dealing with things and saying, okay, if we, if we change how we deliver this particular product, then yeah, we exactly. can save some money, right? And so it's, it's, it's allowed them to have some flexibility there too. Totally. Totally, totally, yeah, absolutely. What kinds of things are you, what else are you seeing out there uh, when it comes to businesses and when they're talking about wages and trying to make sure that they're taking care of their employees? Yeah, yeah. when we've talked to a couple of businesses, uh, they they kind of really do get what you and I have just said, and they, in fact, are paying a living wage. When they start talking about the minimum wage, where they, they've taken on the government uh, in the past, is they say, well, I'm hiring some 16-year-old, he or she is living at home, uh, and I'm training him. It's mm-hmm. his or her first job. And I, 
$15 is too much for that, you know, because I'm training him and I'm trying right. to do that. And they don't need, they're not living on my income. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're living at home. Right. So, and mom and dad is looking after the thing. And so what they've asked for is a more nuanced approach, totally buy into the living wage. If I've got someone, you know, with a family and that kind of stuff, absolutely pay them a living wage. But give me some flexibility on the living wage. And so that that's kind of an interesting one. And it's challenging because it's much more difficult to administer, as you can imagine, because now I have to mm-hmm. say, well, how old are you? Are you living at home? Like, that's the... It adds the complexity, but I do. I've certainly talked to two or three businesses who really would like that opportunity, and they feel that just using a fifteen-dollar minimum wage across the the board uh, for particularly for first entry and for teenagers. But by the way, the majority of people there are studies show that that is not they're not teenagers working at at the fifteen dollars. Mm-hmm. Most of them are. The majority, in fact, are adults. And but having said that, that's one of the the, the, the one of the things that I've certainly got some feedback on is that use a more nuanced approach to the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Franco, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much. You're most welcome. Thank you. I don't know what it was, but crime has always been something that has fascinated me. I've it got kind of lucky in weirdly. I know that sounds weird, but being a reporter and covering it, especially uh, in 07, 08 here in Calgary, it was during the, the gang wars and everything that was going on there. Uh, and then you have the, the drug, uh, drug thing and everything as sort of it's always fascinated me. And so when I found out it's National Police Week in the U.S., and I thought, you know, it's always fun to have those conversations to debunk those myths that investigations can last 45 minutes, just like they do on CSI Miami or Criminal Minds. I thought I'd bring in somebody who has seen it, especially from the forensic side of it this time around, and Bow Valley College instructor. He's also a specialist uh, with Calgary Police Service. Scott Mark joining us now on the program. Scott, thanks so much for the time today. Not a problem. What would you say is the biggest misconception out there when it comes to people who are looking at what police officers do, and in particular those who are involved in forensics? I think there's two big misconceptions out there. The first one many people are aware of, and that's the speed at which we do things. On TV, they always solve the crime in 45 minutes. Uh, For us, it, it takes a significant amount of time for all the things we have to do to make sure not only... We have to prove who's guilty. We have to prove who's not guilty. Make sure we rule out and show how this is the only person who's a suspect for the crime, and that takes time. The other big misconception is the technology out there. I would love to have a computer where I can put a fingerprint in it, and it just spits out the picture of who that fingerprint belongs to. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, especially with fingerprints. Uh, The way it works is we'll have a computer system search a database, such as APHIS. It'll give us 10, 15, 20, 100 different possible people, depending on how many we ask for. And then it's an examiner such as myself who has to go through them one by one, looking at all 10 prints for each person who's a possible to see if we can find a match for it. So it's never computers that make the match. It's actually people, and that's very time-consuming. I was just about to ask, how time-consuming is that? Like, in, in just for one check, how long would it typically take you? That would all depend. Uh, For someone who's a more experienced examiner, and if the print is a 
a very high quality print, it can be done in minutes. However, if it's a fingerprint with different levels of distortion, smudging, because most of the fingerprints we find are not nice clear ones, uh, it can take hours to days. It all depends on the, the fingerprints we're dealing with. And sometimes the known fingerprints that were taken aren't always the clearest either. And for fingerprints, we have to be able to explain everything about them, the areas of distortion, the smudging, and all those details. So it takes some time to go through every fingerprint ridge by ridge. Has the technology gotten better over the years, especially when it comes to, with say, a smudge, being able to make it look a little bit cleaner and be able to alter it to make it uh, about as close to the real deal as possible? The technology has definitely improved uh, with our databases, with the algorithms we use. Uh, Back in 2014, I think it was, they gave us a new algorithm for our APHIS system, and we got so many more uh, hits in the system, finding more potential prints. And the technology to find fingerprints, to um, enhance them or locate them, have improved as well. We use a lot of different programs to enhance the images, uh, digital imaging, came in a long time ago, but it's changed the game for fingerprints for we find them using the camera software to enhance the details so we can see them more clearly. And the techniques we use to find fingerprints have improved as well. So there's been tons of improvement, but at the end of the day, it still takes time and there'll always be fingerprints that are on the edge of insufficient to sufficient that we have to make sure we're not going too far with our conclusions. Are there any um, investigative tactics that are portrayed on TV or in film that are just absolutely outside of the timeline untrue? There's a lot you see on TV. The majority of it on TV is all based in reality. Um, The only thing I've ever seen before that was absolutely 100% untrue, which I thought was kind of funny, uh, there was an episode in CSI, and I can't remember which one it was, but they found pieces of fingerprints throughout a crime scene, a piece on a doorknob, a piece here, a piece here. And all those pieces together weren't enough to do a fingerprint match. But then they put them together on this screen hanging in front of them, and the fingerprints together made a, a full fingerprint, and they were able to get a match from it. We would never be able to do that. Uh, if you were able to match two pieces of a fingerprint, those pieces individually would be enough for an identification. But we'd never be able to construct our own fingerprints that would... Uh, that would never fly. Right. When it comes to, uh, especially now, what you're starting to see a lot more of is uh, documentaries, and especially as we approach anniversaries of certain crimes and that kind of thing. And you're starting to hear a little bit more from forensic experts and, and that kind of thing to dive into um, some of the, the crimes from the past. How helpful is that for your cause in terms of uh, maybe put, bringing to a spotlight more of what is going into some of these investigations? I think it's very helpful. Um, it helps people understand the, the time and the scope of what we need to do. At the same time, even for investigators like myself, I'm always learning. There's cases I've been on where people use different techniques I wouldn't have thought to use. And so I can learn from them as much as anyone um, from different perspectives of things they've done to make things work. So I think those shows are, are great because they'll show both the, the scope and level of detail of the work we have to do but also gives different ideas for where their successes, where their failures were. And we can learn as much from what didn't work on a case as what we what did work on a case. So I think it's great to, to look at those. And that's why we like to share stories and talk more. And that's one of the things I want to do at Bow Valley is help educate the students. Because 
Forensics is one of those things people always thought of as a part of an investigation. But the basic idea of what's forensic should be a philosophy for investigations as a whole, simply because what makes something forensic, the word itself means very little. Anytime you take a field of study and use it in court to prove a fact, that becomes forensic. So I'm just using basic science, chemistry, biology, physics, but when I take that to court, it becomes forensic science. There's many fields of study we can learn from, not just the physical sciences, things like social sciences, behavioral sciences. We're starting to realize there's so much more we can use and apply those to our investigations to make sure we're being as thorough and detailed as we can and learning as much as we can. Mm-hmm. It all comes down to education, and that's something that we can all improve on. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the 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 cold case file we were talking about technology earlier on but i I assume that there's been so many different uh technological advances in forensics that it's allowed you to open up some different cases and to reopen files and take a look and see maybe what was missing what wasn't missing before well technology has definitely helped for cold cases for example in the mid 90s dna was just a, a brand new thing and was barely thought of and wasn't used as much versus now, and I feel old thinking the mid-90s wasn't that long ago, <laughs> but, uh, but now um, they've changed what we need to get a DNA profile. The amount of DNA we need to get a usable profile and the RCMP lab threshold is 150 pictograms or 0.15 nanograms. What that looks like is you go zero decimal, nine zeros, one five. So it's a very, very small number. We need a very small quantity of DNA now to get profiles. However, for cold cases back in the 90s, early 2000s, they may have sent a DNA exhibit into the lab and said, doesn't meet threshold, not enough for a profile. When it wasn't enough then, that threshold is likely below what it is now or above what it is now. So we can go back to those cold cases and resample those DNA exhibits and this time get a profile because we can do it with much less DNA than what we used to be able to. So that was a big advancement and it's helped a lot of cold cases in that way. Mm-hmm. And even beyond that, I assume that allows you to kind of give you give everybody that idea that uh, as thorough as you possibly can get with an investigation, you need to get to it right away, save everything. And even if you think that it might be something that's going to hit a brick wall, maybe down the line, especially with the, the advances in technology, you never know what might be the threshold 20 years, 30 years down the road. Exactly. And that's why when you go to a case like it all stems back to a principle that came hundreds of years ago. And the principle was given by Locard, which said every contact leaves a trace. And that's when the idea for forensics was just being created. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember exactly what that date was, but it was quite a long time ago. Uh, I think it was in the 19th century. So our idea now for forensics essentially is we just need to find those traces. We have increased technology and increased methods that help us find those traces more. But the traces we can find today are probably going to pale in comparison to the traces we're going to find 10, 15 years from now. And that's why anything that could possibly be have that trace on it, we do our best to collect it as much as we can within the resources and abilities we have. That being said, we can't we can't do everything like they do on TV. We don't have every technology and everything available for every case like they see on TV. So we have to make sure and do our best to collect as much as we can. 
That being said, though, it's got to be exciting to be at the forefront and being able to teach some of these young minds and even learn from some of these young minds who might be thinking a little outside the box because of something that they saw on TV and they go, oh, that's not a reality. Well, maybe we can work towards making that a reality. So it's got to be exciting to be uh, kind of a, a be able to be a part of the, the growth and development of the forensics uh, idea. Oh, yeah, it's it's I, I really enjoy teaching. It's a lot of fun to take something and show someone you see you just see their eyes perk up was just wow i can't believe that's actually true because much of what you see on tv is actually true and we can actually do it if we have the right set of circumstances and technologies available one of the simplest ones that works for me is fingerprints on paper people never think of paper as a good source for fingerprints so usually at the start of my classes when i'm teaching i'll have a piece of paper there and i'll ask someone to come up and touch it with a black magnetic powder, within three seconds, even the most novice person can develop fingerprints on that paper just by moving the powder over top of the paper. It amazes six, grade six kids. It amazes high school kids. It amazes parents. It's just really neat to see how quickly and how easily it can be for us to find some of those traces left behind mm-hmm. on items people don't often think about. For fingerprints, they think, oh, it's got to be nice, smooth, shiny glass. But paper... This is a spectacular source for prints, and it's kind of neat to show people how quickly and easily we can find it. It's almost like magic for a lot of adults, I think, more than anything. is How did you flip that card? It's, that was my card. It's the same kind of ideal. Hey, we've created this this fingerprint that seemingly came out of nowhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it's finding what people can't see, what you don't know is there. And in forensic cases specifically, more often than not, the evidence we're looking for is not going to be visible to us at first. And we use different light sources or techniques to increase the contrast between what we're looking for and what's actually there. So it yeah. helps us quite a bit. Absolutely. Scott, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Not a problem. wanted to give you a little more context uh, to the lead story today being that with the rejection of Bill C-49 and the amendments to Bill C-69, certainly a lot of people here in this province are quite happy. And among those people who are quite happy today, Premier Jason Kenney. I would like to thank the senators who voted against Justin Trudeau's attack on Alberta in Bill C-48. And on behalf of the government and people of Alberta, I call upon all senators to sustain the decision, support the decision of the Senate Transport Committee in killing Bill C-48 when it goes back to the Senate for a full vote the week after next. I think this is a vindication for the strong approach taken by our new government to stand up without apology for the economic interests of Alberta, for our jobs, and for our place in the Canadian Federation. Within Uh, three hours of having been sworn in as Alberta's 18th Premier, uh, I I attended and appeared before the Senate Transport Committee uh, in Edmonton to speak bluntly about the implications of that bill for national unity. Uh, I spoke from the heart to the senators who traveled here to Alberta about how this would deepen a divide in our federation, about how Albertans have done so much to contribute so generously to Canada's prosperity in recent decades, and how all we want in, re- in return is the right to be able to develop and sell our resources at a fair price. That means coastal pipelines, and that means Bill C-68 must die in the Senate. 
I want to thank those senators for listening to our voice. One other thing that I got the impression of over the last few weeks is, do you remember the last time where we actually talked about the Senate process and what they actually do? It's one of those funny conversations that it always seemed as though no matter what the government of the day did, the Senate was, yep, rubber stamp and out the door you go. This wasn't the case here. And it seems as though it is a win. Now, that being said, the premier does admit, hey, there's still some things that need to be done to make sure that, yeah, these bills are uh, the proper ways are done about with these two bills. But certainly it kind of feels like a win. And I think that those who uh, deserve credit, and I think both Premier Jason Kenney and former Premier Rachel Notley deserve both some equal credit here because they both did speak in, uh, by all accounts, according to all senators, both were very good in the way they delivered the message of Alberta. And I hope those messages and that tone continue. We can win with some, with some civility. I really do believe that we can win with some civility. I hope we can get to that point, make the rest of this country understand that, hey, we've been the motor behind how fast we've been going. So let's keep it going. I joked a little about this off the top of the show and wanted to give you just a little more context on what I think many Albertans might be considering the bigger news story of the day from Premier Jason Kenney. And finally, I have an uh, additional announcement I'd like to make. As we know, we're on the cusp of uh, the May long weekend, a Victoria Day long weekend. And uh, in, it, before and during the last campaign, I said the United, United Conservative government will end the war on fun. And today is the beginning of uh, the end of the war on fun with regulations that we are announcing uh, to make it easier for people to uh, responsibly consume alcohol in provincial parks uh, and at uh, festivals across Alberta. It's time to lift Prohibition-era restrictions around liquor consumption in Alberta and give adults the freedom to act responsibly. This is so timely as we've been heading into a long weekend in Alberta, as I've said, Uh, That means many people will be heading to our beautiful provincial parks to go camping and spend time outdoor with friends and family. So we're relaxing liquor constraints in municipalities and provincial parks in Alberta, allowing liquor consumption in provincial parks starting this long weekend. Uh, In particular, uh, lifting the the ban on consumption in, in a number of provincial parks where it's existed, and in the future, People will be able to grab a beer and walk around a uh, a summer festival in this province um, without fear of being uh, arrested or ticketed or fined. Um, You know, if they can do this in pretty much every country of Europe, I think we can treat Albertans as responsible grown-ups as well. So with that, happy uh, Victoria Day long weekend. I'm looking forward to your questions. There is one question that I would have liked to have asked the Premier, and that is, was there really a war on fun in this province? I, I I don't know. And part of me goes, maybe I'm naive to it, but maybe I was breaking the rules a little bit, but I never once looked over my shoulder and went, oh, I've got a beer in my hand. I better watch out. Not once. I, I, I Maybe it was just 
I wasn't afraid of the consequences. Here's the thing is what I really hope there was one word in there that I was really uh, happy to hear. And it's responsible. We should all be responsible because I know that a lot of the rules and regulations were around, especially May long weekend and all the, the I'll call it carnage. But you look at what was happening in some of the parks. Let's hold some of those people to account more than anything else. Instead of penalizing everybody else. That was, that's what I hope happens with this announcement. But I guess Time will tell. Of course, Mother Nature might try to get in the way, too. BC Premier John Horgan called it abundantly clear that the depth and breadth of money laundering in BC is far worse than he feared when he was first sworn in. And two reports on money laundering convinced him that an inquiry must be held. So the province appointed BC Supreme Court Justice Austin Cullen to lead the inquiry and has given him broad powers to compel witnesses to testify. Now, that final report is due in 2021. We heard that story yesterday, and it got me into questioning, okay, could this be a big deal here in Alberta? Is this something that we've kind of been blind to, maybe? And as it turns out, it might be because the province has kind of turned a blind eye to it in the last number of years. One of the authors of the report that's pulling back the curtain on the money laundering issue here in Canada is Utrecht University professor Brigitte Unger. And she joins us now on the program to talk more about the Alberta side of things. Professor, thanks so much for the time this afternoon. Good afternoon. Talk a little bit about the issues that you have seen. It was sort of almost a, I don't want to say by accident, but certainly something that was noticed as you were looking through the findings of the BC laundering investigation. There seems to be some connection and some things to be concerned about here in Alberta as well. Yes, I mean, when we estimated money laundering for Canada and then for BC, we definitely had to also look what the other provinces launder since uh, BC is only one of the provinces. And that was then basically the unintended uh, side effect, but also a big surprise to myself that it was not BC, which was the basically highest money laundering province, uh, as I had expected since we had heard about fentanyl circles and Vancouver models, uh, but it was Alberta. And Alberta was sticking out by so much more than BC that it definitely tops all the Canadian provinces. And clearly, um, I asked myself, how, how is this possible that we've never heard about Alberta money laundering or money laundering concerns? And I just doubled and tripled and quadruple checked my model. But... Um, uh, it's clearly a, a model, so it's not we don't know. We can just estimate uh, with very few numbers that we have. But uh, what we have is a world model where we look at the proceeds of crime of the whole world, which countries attract these proceeds of crime most, the, the proceeds from crime and from, from drugs, from fraud, and so on. And it's usually countries and provinces with a very high gross domestic product uh, per person. And Alberta is simply a very rich uh, province. Uh, and uh, we also looked what do money launderers usually look at. They, they look whether there are bonds with the people that live there, whether they have the same cultural experience, whether they share the same religion, whether they speak the same language, whether they have colonial his- history and so on. 
and we also look uh, whether um, the government attitude towards money laundering is lax or not. And Alberta displayed all these features which made it top in our model. That explains, I think, the, yeah, the, the outcome of our model. Do we know how deep this might be going? I mean, we know how money laundering techniques can work and function, but I don't know this about Alberta since I haven't studied it. Money laundering can take very many forms. It can be in in trade, as trade-based money laundering, that you just shift your money outside the province or into the province with fake bills, invoices of imports and exports. It can be in the banking sector. It can be hidden in real estate, as we analyzed for British Columbia. It can be in the oil industry. It can be in underground banking. So there are very many ways where basically money laundering can be hidden. And uh, for this, you really have to do an in-depth study on the province itself. And you have to know the province much better than I do. I'm not Canadian in order to really identify uh, the the high-risk potentials of different sectors. Does this also speak to the uh, interprovincial trade that goes on and the ability for uh, people to move as freely as we do here in Canada? Is that you're seeing multi-jurisdictional uh, aspects to these money laundering schemes? Yeah, I mean, what clearly will happen if... Some of the provinces tighten their anti-money laundering policy, like British Columbia, which definitely announced now LOTA, we make a Land Ownership Transparency Act. Uh, that means that people and criminals will be moving to those provinces which do less so. Uh, so also within Canada, there will be some movements of money laundering. But clearly also from Europe and from the U.S. and from China, there might be shifts from British Columbia to other provinces like Alberta. So this is, uh, I think, very likely. Money launderers usually react very flexible to um, changes in the climate uh, regarding anti-money laundering policy. As we, doctor, look forward to, hey, maybe we get another pipeline built. Hey, we get some things going. The economy gets going again. I can only imagine that the issue of money laundering will only get worse. And so my question becomes is how much on the radar should it be for Albertans at this point? When Alberta is rich, and, and I think Alberta has definitely opened widely its doors to money launderers when it declared that it would not participate in the disclosure of beneficial ownership, which means that it is not interested to find out who owns the companies which are settled in Alberta? They do not want who is the owner or the ultimate beneficial owner of a company. And if I'm a lounger, clearly I would like to go to Alberta since I could hide much easier than if suddenly other provinces start registering who is the owner of this company and is this owner a criminal or not. And I think in this sense, Alberta has announced publicly that it doesn't care so much about money laundering and it, and it doesn't believe that it takes place. And that might be a little bit uh, a dangerous uh, position if, if uh, in the long run because money laundering is a ticking bomb. If launderers settle and criminals settle, they are very difficult to get away again. And if you invite them so openly, uh, that might be a dangerous act to do. 
what kinds of things should the province be doing or is it up to uh, policing jurisdictions to step up and say we've got to get to the bottom of this to actually get this get these numbers down I think the most important thing is transparency you need good registers that you know who owns the houses who owns the companies so uh, beneficial ownership uh, registers for land and for companies, I think, are the most important things. And that's, I think, why British Columbia launching its LOTA, its uh, Land uh, Registering Act, is did a very important step in this direction. And I would be, as a money laundering specialist, very happy if the other provinces would join there because you cannot combat money laundering a province on its own. It is a global crime, so you have to work together to cooperate, to share information in order to fight it. Is that the challenge in and of itself then? And you mentioned the offshore ideas and that kind of thing. Is following the paper trail with the money isn't necessarily as easy as it, sh- as it could be, uh, especially once the money leaves the region or leaves the country? Yes, it's very difficult. And also when it enters the country, you know, if it has already been layered and pumped through the whole globe and then it just appears a very innocent investment into Alberta, then it's very difficult to find out that behind this investment there are uh, ten times layering, selling, buying somewhere through the whole globe of companies uh, and the ultimate beneficial owner is a, is a criminal. So in this sense, it needs a very sophisticated investigation, uh, really a mix of financial experts and police experts, which have to cooperate also um, with each other and across uh, countries and provinces. And in this sense, it's a big challenge to really... Uh, tackle this and to get hold of these uh, criminals. Professor, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Dr. Brigitte Unger at uh, Utrecht University. U- Utrecht University. Uh, ta- one of the authors of that report that went out to BC. Uh, one of our texters saying, wish we had more time for this topic. Too bad you could run a series of conversations or guests on it. Uh, maybe have a few former money laundering listeners call in anonymously. <laughs> that would be kind of... But I mean, it, it, it's certainly something that I think this new government could potentially look into. I think this is low-hanging fruit, isn't it? I mean, it, if you want to get to the bottom of some of these issues when it comes to crime and that... Why not open the books and see what's going on? And and I think that there might be something surprising that we could all find. And as as the professor alluded to, here in Alberta, as one texter says, bring your money here. Just don't know where it's coming from. Scalger today on 770 CHQR. As mentioned previously, the Calgary Police Foundation and the Pacific Assistance Dog Society held a bit of a fundraising initiative start today at a donut shop to help raise money for justice facility dogs. We've heard of a couple of them uh, in the news over the last few months and how they help, especially victims and family members of those dealing with the grieving process and that kind of thing, and wanted to bring in Tara Doherty from Pacific Assistance Dog Society to give us a little bit more insight there. Uh, Tara, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. How fun was today? Oh, it was fantastic. You can't really get any better than puppies and donuts in the same place, right? 
And and absolutely. I mean, this, this is all for a good cause at the end of the day. Talk a little bit about what you're hoping to accomplish with this particular initiative. Well, this is a brand new partnership uh, for us um, with the Calgary Police Foundation. Um, we placed um, Hawk and Cali or Calibri uh, with uh, Calgary Police Service as um, assistance dogs. Um, so they are accredited facility dogs or justice facility dogs, um, as we like to call them, um, with the Calgary Police Service. So they work in the community. Um, and so this fundraiser is a little bit of a public awareness campaign about the work that they do um, that is amazing. But it's also a fundraiser to kind of come at um, what happens in this community from a couple different angles. One, to help place more dogs like them. Um, but also um, to help support the young people in this community, which is really what Hawk and Callie are about. Um, so our friends at Calgary Police Foundation do an amazing job of that. So all the proceeds from this campaign that's being launched today are going to go towards our two programs. You talk about placing dogs and, and finding. What kind of dogs are you looking for? What kinds of uh, attributes do they need to have to be considered even uh, a possible assistance dog? So we actually uh, breed and raise and train all of our own dogs um, at this point. So we're looking for very specific kind of working dog types. So we're breeding dogs that not only are smart and intelligent and can handle, um, you know, the kind of rigor of the training, but also, you know, these dogs are dealing with really tough situations um, with, you know, kids that have been victims of crime, et cetera. And that's not an easy job, whether you're, you're you know, a canine officer or you're a, a human, um, you know, victim assistance um, team member that's going into a situation like that. And so we're breeding dogs that have a lot of resilience, um, that also have a lot of uh, empathy for for people that are drawn to people when they're upset, they're not going to shy away. Um, they're also going to be able to shake it off at the end of the day and come back the next day and do it some more. And and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to have to be worried um, that it's taking a, a physical or emotional toll on them. Um, you know, we're, we always kind of keep their well-being top of mind. So. What does it mean to you to see puppies like Hawk and and Callie do as well as they have? I mean, they've obviously gotten a lot of exposure here, in, uh, exposure here in Calgary for all that they've done. But beyond that, is just the the effect that they've clearly had on uh, those who they've encountered. You know, I I mean, whenever we see, you know, I I have goosebumps right now. Um, whenever we see, you know, uh, you know, whether it's a news story or we hear from the handlers that that work with these dogs um, about the impact that they're having, and I'm going to be really honest, like their their biggest success stories are never going to make it into the news because they're working with vulnerable witnesses, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But the impact they have is absolutely tremendous. And you know, I think of you know other dogs that we've trained and placed where. You know, there's a little girl who couldn't tell her story who'd been going into one of the children's justice centers in Canada for six months. And the dog's first day on the job, they introduced the dog to the little girl and she sat in a room with the dog and the staff were on the other side of two-way mirrors and she told the whole story to the dog. She hadn't spoken in six months. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of impact these dogs have. And I know one of our handlers said to me, she said, I knew a dog was going to help me do my job. I didn't know the dog was going to do my job better than I could. And, 
And so it's really a powerful thing when you realize these kids have already been victimized and often having to sit down and tell their story to another adult when often the person that victimized them was an adult is just another point of, of you know, of, of pain kind of in the journey. So to bring in a dog like Hawk or Callie that can make that process easier and less painful for them is a really important thing. If you'd like to uh, get a hold of some of these uh, Jelly Modern Donuts, all you got to do is head on over to the website, pauseforcompassion.ca. Thank you so much for giving us a little bit of insight into what you guys do. My pleasure. Thank you. Where is the best Caesar you've ever had? That was a question I asked earlier on in the show, and one texter says, says, Bucks in Sylvan Lake. There's one that comes with about a four-ounce steak cubed and skewered on top. Wicked good is how the texter ended that one. Why do I ask about the Caesar? Well, today marks the 50th birthday of the Caesar, and it was born right here in Calgary at the Calgary Inn, which is now known as the Weston Calgary. When management asked their bar manager, Walter Chell, to mix a special cocktail which complemented dishes made with tomatoes and clams for the opening of their new Italian restaurant, hours were spent crafting, adding just the right amount of vodka and tomato juice and clam juice and spices, and the Caesar was born. And legend has it, that very same afternoon, a guest walked into the restaurant and on sampling that creation, exclaimed, Walter, that's a fantastic bloody Caesar. And so Walter called it the Caesar. So I beg the question, who makes the best one? Well, we've been looking around and we decided to ask for those who are going out camping, what are some of the tips to make the perfect one if you're going out? Kenton Rinnick is the bartender manager over at Home and Away on 17th Ave. He joins us now. Thanks so much for the time today, Kenton. Oh, my absolute pleasure. What is the key to a perfect Caesar? Uh, honestly, like you can top it with whatever you want and that's, that's all fine and dandy, but um, it's all about balance just like with any cocktail like whether you're drinking a margarita or a daiquiri or a caesar you have to find a balance between like acid and sweet and especially in the caesar's case being a savory cocktail that like umami and spiciness right Mm. is it important to find when you have a different kind of tomato juice do you need to find a a, something to equal it out like so each juice is going to be a little different in its own way well and just like anything, like, unless you're buying, like, something particular from the store, like, it's not going to be a guaranteed product that's going to taste the same every time. Like, if you're making your own tomato juice, which I've seen people do for Caesars before, <laughs> um, it, it is an, an imperfect science for sure. Uh, so, yeah, you have to, whatever you're putting in there, horseradish, salt and pepper, Worcestershire sauce, uh, yeah, you're, you're obviously having to build up that flavor profile um, inside using the tomato juice. And that's why Clamato was invented at the end of the day. Like, it's supposed to be Clamato. It's supposed to be, um, it's supposed to be uh, shellfish in it. So, mm-hmm. What about the rim? And, and I'm, I'm asking more for those, especially going into the May long weekend, they're all thinking, you know, I want to impress my guests or, you know, we're going out camping and I want to make yeah. a Caesar. What's the best way to, to impress that way? Honestly, uh, Celery salt being the classic, it makes all the sense. And in my opinion, that should be the base. But adding like, um, like dried, like small uh, crushed dried garlic or a little bit of chilies, um, anything that can be as 
attached to that rim that's a savory profile that complements what's inside the cup works um but like i pr- preferably like yeah like lots of like garlic powder onion powder with the celery salt and like a little like maybe um like and like sm- smoked ancho chili salt and then that's way it's wicked Wicked. That's a good word to put there. Uh, a lot of great tips there from Kenton Rinnick over at Home and Away. Uh, thanks so much for the time today, Kenton. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary Today.